You are listening to the Regent College Podcast. Hello, I'm Nick Corbin. I'm Claire Perini. And welcome back to the Regent College Podcast. Welcome back, friends. Okay, you are about to engage with something in the depth that you may not have ever engaged with it before, <laughs> if you're anything like me and possibly anything like Nick. Yes. Um, but you're, it's, it's going to stretch your brain to think about, uh, we're talking about democracy and how we understand democracy and liberal democracy in particular. And then yeah. how does that play itself out in how we understand that as Christians mm-hmm. and how we engage in government and all of those sorts and then how we think about democracy and all yeah. that. And you'll notice that Craig, he quoted quite a few people and he did this partly because he wanted to be accurate and precise with how he was presenting liberal democracy Uh, especially in this day and age, I think it's helpful. Mm. Um, It takes a little more effort because you have to engage and listen and actively listen and process. But in this day and age, I think it's helpful to, for a desire to be accurate. And I really enjoyed one of Craig's main points and that was of having discourse and and respectful Mm -hmm. discourse in the public arena, which is kind of, a lot of the foundation within democracy and a lot of what we're missing in this day and age, especially with social media and fake news. Mm -hmm. And so Craig, I think he did a wonderful job of setting the foundation and kind of showing where we as Christians and as greater public arena can go Mm -hmm. within liberal democracy. Yeah. Yeah. And so if you haven't come across Craig before, Craig Gay lectures in the area of Christianity, society and culture here at Regent and directs Regent's THM program. And he's he's written sort of extensively in, in this kind of intersection of uh, Christianity and culture and society. And so he's, he's written a book called With Liberty or Justice for Whom? The Way of the Modern World, uh, Modern Technology and the Human Future, a Christian appraisal. And he was also the co-editor of the way of truth in the present age. So we hope you really enjoy our conversation with Craig Gay on democracy. Craig Gay, welcome to the Regent College podcast. Is this your first time on the podcast? I feel like it might be. No, I think I've done, uh, I've done at least one other one. I'm maybe two, yeah. Back in the back in the back in the but you haven't done it with Nick and me. So no, no, no. Yeah, so this is back in the old days. <laughs> <laughs> it's exciting times. Well, welcome back. It's great to have you. So we're gonna talk about kind of democracy and government and Christians and how we understand that and but but about democracy. So, you know, we think of democracy as sort of the pinnacle of government systems. I mean, and maybe at least in the West, this is how we see it. But would you say democracy's in trouble? Well, I mean, the short answer is yes, I think it is. Um, mm. uh, democracy's critics today are, are many and vocal, and many appear to have given up on it. Um, at the same time, I think it'd be a mistake to exaggerate this. Right. Um, democracy is always difficult, mm-hmm. and it's always been in trouble. Mm. Um, this was why uh, Plato thought it. Uh, a particularly bad form of government. Um, I like the title of a recent book 
along this line. And this is a great title. It says, democracy may not exist, but we'll miss it when it's gone. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It's It seems simplistic to ask, but I, I wonder if some definition would be helpful for ourselves and for those listening. But could you just define democracy? And also, could you actually define liberal democracy as well? Because I think that distinction might be helpful as well. No, I mean, it's not simplistic at all. And I think one of our problems really is that we have largely forgotten what democracy actually is, um, the problems that it was designed to address, and where it's come from. Mm -hmm. These are all things that need now to be um, remembered. Yeah, Um, yeah. mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So uh, let me just begin with democracy. The, The word democracy simply means rule of the people. Uh, as opposed to uh, the rule of one, say, a king, mm-hmm. as in uh, the word monarchy, mm-hmm. or the rule of, of the few, as in um, the word aristocracy. Mm-hmm. Um, the, I think the essence of democracy was well captured in Abraham Lincoln's celebrated phrasing. This was in the Gettysburg Address, that it is a government of the people by the people and for the people. Yeah. Um, but you know, this begs the question: Why should the people govern? Right. Why, mm. why, why not those more qualified, mm-hmm. um, like say those specifically trained to govern? Um, in Plato's case, uh, the philosopher kings. Um, a modern version of, of Plato's position is that government is simply too important and too complicated to entrust to ordinary people. Mm. And so it's, it's better entrusted to uh, the party or to experts or technocrats, uh, which is to say to uh, a minority of persons who are specifically qualified to govern by reason of their superior, ostensibly superior knowledge. And I mean, this is a hard position to refute. Um, and the answer that modern Democrats give is some combination of the uh, observed fact that power tends to corrupt, and particularly when it's concentrated, and that actual people are better judges of their own interests than philosophers and or other experts. Mm-hmm. But um, democracy does beg the question of who the people are yeah and how the will of the people is is best determined um i like uh francis fukuyama's um recent um definition of democracy he he argues that the core of modern democracy is accountability Mm. Um, so it's the accountability of those who hold political power through mechanisms like free and fair multi-party elections and universal adult franchise. Mm. Now, um, another political uh, thinker, uh, very well-known political thinker, uh, Yale uh, political scientist, Robert Dahl has provided a somewhat more detailed list. He says a democracy will have the following uh, components. Uh, First, elected officials, 
Second, free and fair elections. Third, inclusive suffrage. Fourth, the right to run for office. Fifth, freedom of expression. Sixth, alternative or, or non-governmental sources of information. And finally, uh, associational autonomy. Um, so those are those are components of democracy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, moving on to the liberal part of the definition, um, right. the liberal part, I think that in many ways is is the most important and is in in some ways most under attack today. For this word refers to what governments are for, um, and also what they are allowed to do vis-a-vis -vis those who are governed. Mm. Um, Friedrich Hayek, a celebrated liberal thinker, has this quote, it's a great little quote. He says, it's not who governs, but what government is entitled to do that seems to me to be the essential problem. Mm. Now, mm. The, the classical definition, the classical liberal definition is that government should be designed and deployed to maximize the space for the individual exercise of freedom. And hence the word liberal, mm -hmm. taken from the word uh, liberty. Mm -hmm. Now, this liberal emphasis upon individual freedom has always come under attack. Um, doesn't liberty inevitably devolve into license? Mm -hmm. And doesn't this emphasis upon individual liberty uh, minimize the importance of, of family and community and tradition, um, as well as uh, future generations? And this kind of criticism is, is again, it's hard to refute. Mm. Um, now, the liberal reply to it is simply to say that human dignity still requires that individuals be left free before God, to make their own moral and religious choices. Oh. Hmm. And all of these other collective agencies, the, uh, the liberal continues, which is to say family, community, tradition, all of these can be and often have been repressive of individual human freedom. And so it's not simply governments that must be kept from running roughshod over human liberty. But these other agencies must also be held in check as well in a liberal society. Mm. So at a practical level, uh, a liberal system of government, which is not necessarily democratic. There, there, there are other ex examples. Uh, you can have a liberal uh, monarchy, for example. Right. Um, mm. But a liberal system of government is one that requires even the most powerful actors within the system to operate under the same general rules as ordinary citizens. So it insists on what mm. we call, what we commonly call the rule of law. Yeah. And it also endows individuals with rights over and against their governments and against each other, actually. Um, the right to believe as one's conscience directs, uh, the right to express oneself freely, uh, the right to associate freely with others, um, some in some instances, the right to hold property. Hmm. Um, Nick Walterstorff, uh, who's a 
uh, contemporary Christian philosopher, uh, and this is out of a book called Understanding Liberal Democracy, puts it this way. He says, what is a liberal polity, liberal government? Well, the liberal polity is one in which there is a constitutional legal framework that guarantees to all of it, all sane adult citizens, due process of law, along with the so-called civil liberties, foremost among these liberties being freedom of conscience, freedom of religious practice, freedom of speech, uh, freedom of assembly, freedom from search and seizure without warrant, freedom from cruel and unusual punishment, and freedom from intrusions into one's private life. Each of these freedoms is a blend of freedom from actions of certain sorts by the state and freedom guaranteed by the state from actions of certain sorts by one's fellow citizens. Mm. So a liberal state, Walter Storff concludes, is he, he has a nice, uh, a nice title for this, is a rights-limited state or a state limited by uh, rights. Rights. Mm. Now, all of these commitments are typically set out in a constitution, and you'll sometimes hear people speak of a constitutional democracy. Yeah. Um, so a, a liberal democracy, bringing the, the two things back together, a liberal democracy is a government of the people, by the people, for the people, in which the will of the people is regularly ascertained by way of procedures like majority voting, but it's also one in which the resulting majority is prevented by law from simply crushing the minority. Mm. Mm -hmm. um, again, Fukuyama offers a nice, simple, uh, sort of surface-level definition of liberalism. He says, liberalism is best understood as an institutional solution to the problem of governing over diversity. It's a system for peacefully managing diversity in pluralistic societies. Right. Now, Hayek captures this, I think, most concisely. He says, a liberal society is one that aims at producing a peaceful society with a minimum of force. So, so then would we say that, you know, democracy or liberal democracy is maybe the best form of government, you know, or does it, you know, is it, or is it, you know, it's just the one we've been given. It's the one that's been instituted. Does it have a biblical precedence? How do we, how do we understand that? Yeah, those are good questions. Um, they're complicated and yeah. you know, <laughs> controversial. Mm -hmm. um, democracy per se does not appear in the Bible. No. And the Bible as you know, I mean, it places very little faith in the people yeah. <laughs> as, as such. Yeah. Um, however, at, at the same time, the notion of covenant, which mm. is so central within the biblical narrative, does require uh, the free participation of each and every one of the people. As one of the rabbinic commentators argues in respect to the covenant at Sinai, it isn't a single covenant, but rather it's 600,000 covenants between mm. God and each one of the Israelites. Mm. For each act of consent is also an agreement to be a part of the covenantal community. 
And so it, it's argued, and I think plausibly, that the this biblical notion of covenant is a crucial precursor to modern democracy. Mm-hmm. And, and of course, there are others as well, which we'll talk about. Um, this is the way Glenn Tinder begins his uh, important book, The Political Meaning of Christianity. Tinder writes, he says, we live today in a time of profound confusion. At the same time, the Christian understanding of things has to an astonishing degree been forgotten. And one of the main assumptions underlying this book is that our confusion and our Christian forgetfulness are connected. Mm. There are insights in the Christian tradition that we cannot afford to neglect whether we are Christians or not. If we become incapable of recalling them, we shall suffer from spiritual impoverishment. But this will also be reflected in outer political turmoil as well. So what are these insights? Well, there's there are a bunch of them. Uh, we've already touched on a couple. Um, One of them is this liberal conviction that human dignity requires that individuals be left free before God to make their own moral and religious choices. Mm -hmm. Now, this is not a classical conviction. We we don't get this from classical Greek philosophy, for Mm -hmm. example. And there's nothing in the nature of things that suggests it either. Um, Rather, it is an insight that has come into our civilization by way of the Bible. And you remember Jefferson's, uh, Thomas Jefferson's celebrated phrase that uh, this is out of the uh, Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal. Well, this is very obviously not Mm -hmm. self-evident. It's not evident at all. Rather, it stems from the biblical assertion that God values each and every one of us very highly, and that we will, each each one of us, be called to give account of ourselves before God. Hmm. Now, even more specifically, this insight has come into our civilization by way of the Protestant understanding of the priesthood of all believers, Mm -hmm. implying that the Spirit of God can speak through any one of us at any given time, and hence that everyone needs to be given a hearing, both in the church and in the polis and in the mm. Mm. Now, another insight, another biblical insight, um, is that power corrupts, and hence that political power must not be allowed to concentrate into the hands of the few or the one. And here again, this is not a classical insight. Uh, And nature actually seems, by way of uh, the survival of the fittest, to teach the opposite. Uh, And the modern logics of business and technology also suggest that the concentration of power is both efficient and often profitable. Hmm. And so here's another example of an insight that has come into our civilization by way of the Bible, or via the Bible, and specifically via the Bible's teaching about human sin. Hmm. Um, now, there, there are other examples, but let me just want mention one more, um, which I think is, is, is really is interesting and, and crucial. 
Modern democracy, it turns out, um, lives in and encourages debate and discussion. Although modern media pundits often sneer at how difficult it seems to be for politicians to achieve enough consensus to actually get anything done, it's in the debate that the will of the people is often best discerned. Mm -hmm. And when it's not possible to reach consensus, this very often means that the people want, what the people want is simply not clear and that it would be mistaken to press forward with a policy that got things wrong. Um, A.D. Lindsay, I don't, I don't know what these initials stand for. <laughs> I haven't looked it up, but he, he, he was an Oxford scholar. He wrote a little book um, in the 1930s trying to summarize the essence of democracy. And he, he puts it this way. Um, democracy, and I'll, I'll read these Quotations, democracy is based on the assumption that people can agree on common action, which yet leaves each to live his or her own life. Hmm. That if we really respect one another's personality, we can find a common framework or system of rights within which the free moral life of the individual is possible. Well, how that can best be attained, he continued can be discovered only by discussion hmm. in which the one-sidedness of particular views can be eliminated and a principle of common action discovered, which each can feel does justice to what was vital in his or her own contention. Hmm. Okay, he continues. Now, surely if we reflect on it, what matters most in those tiny democratic societies, which we feel to be thoroughly satisfactory forms of government, is what comes out of the free give and take of discussion. Hmm. People who are serving a common purpose meet to pool their experience, to air their difficulties, and even their discontents. There comes about a real process of collective thinking. And the narrowness and one-sidedness of each person's point of view is corrected, and something emerges which each can recognize and as embodying the truth of what he stood for, and yet, or rather therefore, is seen to serve the purpose of the society better than what anyone conceived for himself. And I, of course, I've seen this happen in uh, faculty meetings. That's what, that's what <laughs> That's what this makes me think of. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, and that's why they're so crucial. Um, okay, so here, here's the final, here's the conclusion. Now, with all of this in mind, if we approach the problem created by the large scale of political democracy, we shall say that what matters is not that the final decision of government should be assented to by everyone, but rather that everyone should have, should somehow have made his contribution, his or her contribution to that decision. Right. There cannot possibly be one enormous discussion, but there may be smaller areas of discussion, and the results of these may be conveyed, conveyed by the representative to uh, a further discussion and so on. That, that gets into the whole design mm -hmm. of, of, a, of a representative democracy, which we can't really talk about. Mm -hmm. um, again, Nick Waltersdorf um, says, pretty much the same thing. Uh, much more recently, he says that the essence of democracy is 
the equal right of citizens to what he calls full political voice. And this doesn't mean the equal right of citizens to get their own way. I mean, there'd be no way for that to work. No. But rather that it's the equal right of at least of each to express their own interests. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so yeah. the, uh, the conviction that everyone's potential contribution to the debate is of equal value right. traces back to uh, the Protestant doctrines of the priesthood of all believers and of the Holy Spirit's in, inspiration. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and just to sum this this up, I mean, as, as noted Roman Catholic theologian Jacques Maritain once commented, modern liberal democracy has uh, an evangelical essence, mm. by which he meant um, not evangelical in the, in, the, in the sense that we're using the term today, but biblical. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't get there, you don't get to it without uh, uh, these, these biblical um, without biblical inspiration, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Have we got multiple democracies happening within democracies? So you've got a big, you've got the kind of like a, a, a nation's democratic way, but then you might have, you know, a sports club, a church or whatever that's sort of, I sort of got like little mini democracies happening within a larger democracy. Do you know what I mean? Like it seems to me that there's sort of little democratic things within a bigger mm-hmm. democratic thing. No, and those turn out to be crucial to the functioning of the larger whole because right, right. That's, where, that's how people learn the habits, uh, the, the, the habits of democracy, the right, habits right. of principle of persuasion. Um, they learn that uh, they can survive uh, losing a vote, for example. Um, right. And, and these are all things that don't come naturally to people. <laughs> and um, they, they have to learn them. In fact, one of the things that some of the commentators are most concerned about today is that um, most of us aren't involved in those sorts of small democracies. Yeah, right. And so we're, and so we're not learning the habits of, uh, of democratic participation. Right. So Craig, just, I just want to reiterate what I'm kind of hearing is the common framework in which the democratic system works is through discourse and through being able to present your opinion and thought or perspective and be heard. And then in some essence, put it to a vote and yeah. let that, let that stand. And so for today, that seems to be uh, in conflict or intention or a lot more difficult to have that discourse. Mm-hmm. Um, kind of what you were actually talking about, Claire, with those mini democracies, but even more than that on a, a national and global level. So I wonder if, if you could touch on that as far as like the threats to, to actually democracy. Let me put it this way. I think democracy hinges on being able to, at least politically, to be able to say, we. Um, I always think of the of the US Constitution that begins, you know, the first line is we the people, hmm. and then carries on. Now, you can argue that this was and, and, and still is a, a kind of fiction that the we of this late 18th century document didn't include women, mm. uh, indigenous people, slaves, 
and and many others. And you would be right. Uh, the we of the of the U.S. Constitution was not of uh, of great scope. Not at, not at that point. I mean, that scope has has, has broadened since mm. then. But it was nevertheless an understanding of a we that that did successfully manage to unite a collection of of disparate, very different, uh, formerly British colonies into a single political entity. Um, And it's a we that has managed to stand the test of time. Um, You know, it's it's survived now uh, uh, 200 and some odd years. It's survived a civil war. It has continued to attract uh, immigrants from all over the world seeking a better life for themselves and and their families. Um, And I think it's it's true that all functioning democracies operate on the basis of an analogous, even if only implicit, sense of a we, of an us. Hmm. Now, the, the chief threat to democracy today are all of the many forces that seek to divide the we into an us and a them. Yeah. And this is, of course, something that comes much more normally and naturally to fallen human beings. Um, and now chief among these forces today, I think, are uh, racial divisions. Uh, we could talk about that. Uh, class divisions, which I think are, are very important. Now, just make a few comments on that. Um, Modern democracies are by and large middle-class phenomena. Uh, Mm. They they depend upon a relatively large and growing middle class of citizens existing between the extremes of wealth and poverty. And this is to say, modern democracy depends upon a a group of people who have an interest in the political system and whose prospects are linked to its continued success, right? Yeah. They want it to succeed. Yeah, they need it to go well. Yeah. (laughs) Um, Now, recent decades have seen what was once a large and relatively homogenous middle class break apart. Mm. into a relatively small and and very highly privileged political class um, and a much larger lower middle class whose prospects appear increasingly dim. Now, the reasons for this split are largely economic, but it doesn't bode well for democracy. Um, Now, following on from this, I'll just say one more one more thing. I think, and this is the role of social media. Mm. Um, effective democratic participation depends on a more or less reliable supply of more or less accurate information. Mm. People need to know, even if only roughly, yeah, what they're voting for. Right, right. Who these people are and and, yeah. and what's at stake in these elections that they are called to vote in. Um, well, this has become a problem, and it's it's a problem that has been exacerbated by the fact that the algorithms that determine what people receive in their news feeds have not been designed to tell the truth so much as simply to deliver whatever news stands the best chance of capturing people's attention. 
And truth and reality apparently score poorly in this regard. <laughs> um, now, you know, you don't want to exaggerate this. I think it's always been a problem. Uh, Soren Kierkegaard complained about the media's production of useless noise already in uh, er the early 19th century in, mm. uh, in Denmark. But the technology of social media has made this problem exponentially worse. Today. Mm, totally. Mm. And it's far from clear that modern democracy will be able to survive the, the, the surfeit of fake news. Um, now, I mean, there are other things we could mention, but these are the, the, the principal threats to democracy are, the, are all of these forces that, set, that, that threaten to separate us into an us and a them, mm -hmm. a divide. Mm -hmm. Uh, mm -hmm. And democracy, I think, will depend upon our being able somehow to resist these forces. Mm -hmm. Hmm. And so, thanks, Craig. That it's it's helpful thinking. It's yeah, helpfully giving those sort of threats and kind of making that really clear. So then, as as Christian, then how do we respond? Like, should we should we be upholding liberal democracy? And so, if that's so, how do we how do we respond? What like should we be upholding liberal democracy? From your opinion. And then we got. Then we could talk about church and state, but maybe maybe we can, and how we understand those that relationship. But yeah, should we should we be upholding liberal democracy? How? Well, yeah. I mean, I think the answer is yes. We could. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> um, I think basically the defense of democracy follows uh, from our from the biblical command to love our neighbor. Right. Um, because. Democracy, liberal democracy, has been good for ordinary people, by and large. It's been good for the conditions under which ordinary people thrive. Um, it's also been very good for religious freedom. Um, Robert Dahl, the fellow I mentioned earlier, uh, forwards the following list of, of benefits, which I think are worth uh, thinking about. Let's see how many of them are there. He's got uh, eight of them. First, democracy helps to prevent government by cruel and vicious autocrats. Um, second, democracy guarantees its citizens a number of fundamental rights that non-democratic systems do not and cannot grant. Third, democracy ensures its citizens a broader range of personal freedom than any feasible alternative to it. Fourth, democracy helps people protect their own fundamental interests. Fifth. Only democratic government can provide a maximum opportunity for persons to exercise the freedom of self-determination, that is, to, to live under laws of their own choosing. Sixth, only a democratic government can provide a maximum opportunity for exercising moral authority, moral autonomy, sorry, not authority. Mm -hmm. um, seventh, democracy fosters human development more fully than any feasible alternative and eighth, only a democratic government can foster a relatively high degree of political equality. Now, of course, taken together, these, these reasons explain why there are so many people in, in, in so many parts of the world who long today to live under democratic conditions. Is, you know, is the system perfect? Well, of course not. No. Um, could it be perfected? Well. No, 
Yeah. Um, as as Reinhold Niebuhr once commented, uh, democracy is a method of finding proximate solutions to insoluble problems. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, I mean, this is already implicit in, in Dahl's comments that the alternatives to liberal democracy today aren't any better. Mm. Um, and, and, and many are obviously much worse. Um, the famous quote from uh, Winston Churchill, he said, many forms of government have been tried and will be tried in this world of sin and woe. No one pretends that democracy is perfect or all wise. Indeed, it's been said that democracy is the worst form of government, except for all of those other forms that have been tried. <laughs> um, now, all of the other, all of the alternatives to democracy basically entail a retreat to, uh, in effect, a natural state in which might ultimately makes right. Mm. Uh, all inevitably foreclose upon liberty. Um, and in any kind of pluralistic setting, like, you know, Canada and the U.S., alternatives to democracy must inevitably result, they can only result in heightened conflict, social conflict. Mm. Um, and finally, I mean, following on from this, and I think very importantly, if we lose democracy, it will be difficult if not impossible under contemporary postmodern conditions to reestablish it. Right. Hmm. Um, yeah. As uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau once, once commented, uh, and I, I'm ambivalent about Rousseau's uh, understanding of democracy, but, mm -hmm. but I think he was right to say, he says, free peoples, remember this maxim, liberty can be gained but it can never be recovered. So, love of neighbor, I think, requires us to care about democracy. Mm -hmm. um, That's um, liberty can be gained but never recovered. Oh, it makes me. I don't. It makes me ask me. It gives me thought around redemption. So right. like, you know, like that sounds so extreme, like it can never be recovered, you know, like it's once it's gone, it's gone. But what, like, you know, is there, I don't know, is it, is it extreme? Is there? Re no, I'm sure it's extreme because obviously, yeah. obviously, um, obviously it was yeah. constituted in our own history. I mean, yeah. we, we know this, mm -hmm. um, but, and I, you know, I like the phrase just, yeah. it, it, it says, look, Pay attention. <laughs> Pay attention. Don't, yeah. don't take this for granted. Sorry to interrupt this wonderful conversation, but Claire Perini has something really important she'd like to share with you. Thanks, Nick. I do have something very important to say. Firstly, it's to say thank you to the number of people who listen to the podcast and they, they like the podcast so much that they send us emails to let us know or little donations of cashola. Mm. So, um, so thank you for those who are, who have been supporting the podcast, but if you've been listening to the podcast and you've been thinking, oh, I wonder how Nick gets paid. <laughs> no. Cut, Cut that out. That out. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so if you've been listening to the podcast and you've appreciated some of the conversations that we've had, we would love you to, to let Regent know by sending us an email or sending us a donation. And you can do that on the Regent College website if you go to rgnt.net forward slash give. That's rgnt.net forward slash wow. give. What a great American, North American accent. Or like some sort of weird <laughs> hybrid accent. Yeah. Uh, wonderful. And if you do give a donation, would you please tell them the podcast sent you? Thanks for listening and for your support. We hope you enjoy the rest of our conversation. So given that liberal democracy is where we're at, but also there's been this separation between the church and the state, and there's there's pretty well a consensus that Christendom is is now dead. Um, I guess what are both like the costs, but also the benefits within this separation? Again, I mean, uh, these are big questions, right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and it, there's you know it's a it's a long and complicated history this this relation between church and state. Yeah. But I, I, you know, again, it's, it's a history that needs now to be remembered. Mm. Um, as um, I'll refer to uh, the work of a political historian uh, named Hugh Hecklow, um, he notes that there are two basic tolerations that would seem to be uh, essential to modern democracy anywhere in the world today. And the first, is the political freedom of elected governments from control by religious authorities. And second, the religious freedom of individuals and groups from control by the government. So this, you, um, okay. you've got church, you've got state, mm -hmm. and they need to, they need to be kept uh, free uh, from each other. Mm -hmm. right. Now, that the two tolerations were first formally instituted in the United States in the late uh, 18th century and for a number of historically unique reasons, which are worth remembering. Um, Hecklow points out that the American situation, or that in the American situation, the Reformation's proliferation of Protestant sects uh, had simply created more Christian heretics then it was practical to persecute. Um, and this same proliferation had created a number of minority religious groups with a self-interest in advocating for religious tolerance. And, and by the end of the 18th century, the, the bloody conflict that had followed upon the Reformation in Europe had forced Christian thinkers to reconsider the meaning of the Christian gospel in, in respect to politics. Mm. And this reconsideration led to what Hecklow calls uh, the doctrine of religious liberty. Um, and it, the doctrine was developed mainly in debates among Protestants, um, not really between believers and secularists, as we're, you know, we're often taught in, in school. Uh, North American Christians like Roger Williams, uh, William Penn, Isaac Bacchus, and others confronted other more traditional Christians 
And the latter thought that because they were right in their doctrine, they were right to persecute error. No, came the, the new response. A Christian simply cannot be right in their understanding of Christianity if they think that religious persecution is right. And so, at bottom, uh, involving the government in religion was not a political or a philosophical mistake. It was a theological mistake. It was a religious error. Mm. God does not coerce us, so the new argument ran, and neither should we coerce each other. Mm. And so it was on the foundation of these twin tolerations that a number of basic human rights were erected. Um, freedom of conscience, freedom of religious practice, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. Um, and the preservation of such rights is the basic guarantee of, of, of modern liberal society, modern liberal democracy. Now, in the, in the absence of these two tolerations, it's doubtful that these rights can be maintained for very long. And this is why it's so important for us to remember how they came into practice. Toleration of diversity in respect to comprehensive doctrines was not, at least in the modern period, a secular achievement. It was a theological achievement and parsed out by people trying to trace out the political implications of the Christian religion. So anyway, that's... Mm. Again, this is all stuff we need to we need to remember. It's yeah, it's super right. important. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if we forget it, um, uh, it's going to be hard to hold this hold this uh, project together. Yeah, mm -hmm. and as you say, and hard and harder again to then bring it back. So, right. kind of recognizing, yeah, the importance of that. Yeah, totally. I'm wondering in this politically charged and polarized state in which we live in, within liberal democracy how we as Christians are to both influence culture and, and governmental to structures. Glenn Tinder, who you, who you quoted, has this interesting perspective on political responsibility, if I can read it. He says, the principle of human dependence on the leadership of God makes it possible to be expected. And he's talking about for those who affirm the liberating significance of history, of Christ within history. Yet, it's also realistic, and he uh, talks to the theologians who stress the human sinfulness, that we live in a fallen world. He says, and, and he goes on to say, thus giving rise to a, to a balanced sense of political responsibility. So on the one hand, there seems to be, even within Christian and, and the church, this expectant, like Christ came to liberate and free the oppressed, and we need to make sure our systems and our democratic systems in place are upholding that. But on the other hand, there's people who even, even in churches and different contexts are like, we don't like even talk about politics. Like we believe that humans are sinful and that we live in a fallen world. And this is just, just the case. So I wonder if you could just touch on, on how the church can be an influence and a unifying factor in the midst of this polarizing time. I mean, the Christian faith is a, is a blend of um, of hopefulness, right, uh, and and patience, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Like 
Yes. I mean, and, and this is crucial now because, you know, there's so many things that, uh, that are pointing in the direction of hopelessness in our mm-hmm. world today. Right. Um, and, and many people, I think, are losing hope. Um, and, you know, that's a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 you know, it's in, into this sort of situation that, uh, that the, the reminder that with, with God, all things are possible. Right. Is, uh, is so life-giving. And also the, you know, these basic uh, implications of, of, of Christian, uh, of the Christian religion, that, that the, the, the incarnation of, of Christ, the coming of Christ uh, as a human being and the, and the resurrection of, of the Christ from the dead um, signals God's absolute commitment to redeem mm. uh, his creation. Mm-hmm. He hasn't given up on it. He, he, he will not give up on it. Right. And there's the proof, right? Yeah. Um, and, you know, that's, that's really, really good news because it sure looks like he's given up on it. And mm. uh, a lot of things are pointing in, in the opposite direction. Mm. So we need this hopefulness because it, it's, it's hopefulness that will enable us to do the work that we've been given to do. Um, but we, we don't do it uh, imagining that somehow we are going to uh, redeem the world by yeah. our efforts. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I mean, it's, it's, it's way too huge of a problem for us to, to manage. But nevertheless, we've been given uh, work to do. And mm. called to that work. Mm-hmm. Um, now, a little bit more specifically, in this question of how you know Christians can have an influence, um, let me just return to the point I made a little earlier: that democracy lives in discussion and and debate. Mm. And of course, discussion and debate require engaging with other people with whom you may well disagree. Yeah. Um, and it means according these others, the right to speak. And it means listening carefully and respectfully to what they have to say. Mm. Um, it also means trying to explain your own convictions and beliefs, not necessarily in ways that these others might naturally accept within the framework of their own comprehensive doctrines, their own, you know, understanding of the world, but at least in ways that are not combative and offensive. Mm, mm-hmm. Now, Christians of all people shouldn't find the situation of pluralism threatening. Um, first century Christians entered a culture that was characterized by a profound pluralism. Mm, mm-hmm. And they found a way to preach a gospel to, you know, as uh, I think, I think Peter has the best list. He, he says, Jew and Gentile, male, female, slave, free, barbarian, Scythian, Greek, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, from a Christian point of view, we know that the gospel creates pluralism. It, 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 it's not just simply mm. something that can be spoken into pluralism. It mm. creates it. You know, as Jesus said, do not suppose that I came to bring to peace to the earth but rather a sword that would divide even the most intimate of human relations. So Mm. anyway, 
Mm-hmm. Pluralism isn't a problem from yeah. the view of the Christian religion. And I think Christians of all people ought, therefore, to be good at listening and speaking to those with whom they disagree mm. about matters of fundamental importance. Um, and one gets the impression today that many contemporary Christians are, are somehow shocked and, and offended by diversity. Mm. Uh, and that they long for this this mythical time when we all believed the same things and and we all shared the same commitments. But um, you know, I would say that these Christians are are obviously not reading their Bibles very carefully, mm. right. and um, they've forgotten their own history. For such a time never existed. <laughs> um, the gospel always comes into a world in which. Uh, many, and perhaps even most, reject it. Um, so, I mean, here's here's this, uh, I'll read uh, 1 Peter 3, um, 2 verses, 14 through 16. But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord, and always be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience, so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. Mm. Um, I think, you know, in short, we Christians ought to be known for being good listeners Mm -hmm. and for our commitment to gentle and principled persuasion. Mm. And this has probably always been the way Christians have had and or made a lasting impact upon uh, culture. Mm-hmm. So, oh, so many things to think about. There's so a many. lot to think about. <laughs> it's like, oh, yeah, there's, uh, it's left me with more questions. But it has yeah. been super, super helpful to think in the ways that you have, Craig, around right. kind of theologically and historically and just mm-hmm. kind of political science-wise around like what is democracy and how do we as Christians sort of engage and, and help mm-hmm. preserve and, and think what even what does that even mean? How does that play itself out? So um, thanks so much for helping us understand and helping yeah. us kind of dig into this a little bit deeper. Yeah. Well, you're, you're most welcome. And I, I mean, I'm, this is a, I'm learning all of this stuff. Right. Um, and it is so interesting and so mm-hmm. fascinating and it. And I think it's so important. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so I'm grateful to you to have the chance to talk about it and uh, yeah, we'll uh, keep the conversation keep going. going. Yeah, yes. totally. Yeah. And I appreciate it. Thanks for your time. Thanks, Craig. Craig. Thanks for listening to the Regent College podcast. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. To discover more about Regent College, its upcoming events, conferences, courses, and more content like this, visit rgnt.net. That is rgnt.net.